Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. We're going to finish this series today that we began a number of weeks ago. Uh, and next week, you will want to be here. The month of October, we're really going to talk about what's next for us as a church as far as over the next five-ish years. And so the, the month of October, we're really going to unpack some new things, some direction and stuff like that. So you'll want to be here next week. But this week, we're going to finish this series. You know, Jerry and I moved here uh, eight and a half years ago to plant this church. And when we got here, you know, kind of at the very beginning, we, one of the things I discovered, and those of you who have lived here forever know this, is that there's like a church literally on every corner, right? There's like literally a church on just about every corner, literally just about. Um, and, and I was stunned by this because it seems to me that with so many churches that the city should look different. I mean, as we got here, one of the things that I discovered is this sort of general hopelessness that, that people like had just sort of grown comfortable with the fact that there's not a lot of hope for us, there's not a lot for the future, and we're just sort of hunkered down as people who are Christians, and we're, you know, one day Jesus will return and everything will be made new, but for now, this is just the way it is. And we just sort of, like, I didn't really understand it. I didn't understand why this city didn't look more and more like the kingdom of God. Does that seem like a reasonable assumption that if there's a church on every corner that this city ought to look like a hopeful place, like a peaceful place, like a joyful place? And yet I found that so absent and so missing, and I had a hard time with that. I was puzzled. And after a while, I felt like the Lord spoke to my heart, and, and the, the sense that I got was that the Lord was saying, this is a very religious city, but there's not a lot who have encountered my presence. That we've actually grown really comfortable in this city being a people who go to church and do church things, but we're not really passionate about the presence of God. We don't actually want more of God, and many of us haven't ever actually encountered God. One of the senses that I had was that the gospel many had received in this city was, you can go to heaven when you die, and you don't have to go to hell. And so people prayed that prayer, and, and they, they, you know, okay, I've got my ticket, right? It's sort of like fire insurance, and I put it in the, the drawer until I need it. And the sense that I had was that many, many people in this city had not received the gospel that Jesus has come to be king and invite you into life now, the life of the age to come coming now. And that there's so much that we just sort of take for granted. We just assume, you know, it, it becomes really, really comfortable that we all just sort of go, you know, we all have the Holy Spirit because we've given our lives to Jesus and we've been baptized. We all have the Holy Spirit. So surely he's among us all the time and we're comfortable when he's not here. And we just sort of assume that he must be. And we're comfortable with the fact that the Holy Spirit's not doing much among us. And I had a really, really, really hard time with that. And as I started to meet other pastors and engage with other pastors, I would have conversations. And I would say, is this, like, am I reading this right or am I just sort of like off? 
And people are like, yeah, it's, it's kind of who we are. This is, you know, you know and the, the, the one that always came back, right, the Billy Graham, it's just the way it's always been. The church has always been divided. And it sort of has this like malaise about it, right? Like this is, you know, what, what could be done? What could possibly ever be done? And over the years, I have found it to be true that like this hopelessness just pervades. But what I also know is that Jesus can break into even the hardest of places. Is that not good news? Jesus can break into the hardest of hearts. The most religious of people Jesus can break into. And that's what I want to talk about today. We began this series a few weeks ago called Come and See. And the premise of the series has been that we, if we want to see the city around us changed, if we want to see people around us come into relationship with Jesus, the way that happens is we ourselves encounter Jesus. That we don't try to push an encounter with Jesus that we haven't had on other people. We actually are people who have experienced this altering encounter with Jesus, and we go and we share that, and that propels us into the world and that the gospel spreads that way. And at the beginning of the series, I explained this in the two-part series, some of you will remember. Today, what I want to show you is that Jesus is good news for religious people. Jesus is good news for religious people. I'm calling this message, Reject Religion and Embrace Jesus. Does that sound okay? Reject religion and embrace Jesus. Let's pray and then uh, we'll turn to God's word. So Lord, I do just welcome you into this space. And Lord, I'm so grateful for your presence. I'm so grateful that you move among us and that you're so generous. And God, I pray that you would put power in the words that I speak. God, that my words would not be mine, but they would be yours alone. God, I pray that you would soften our hard hearts, that you would come in, and Lord, that you would transform us. God, that we would let go of religion and embrace Jesus. And would you make us people who have encountered you, who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Come, Lord, would you turn our hearts toward you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to look at Acts. Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 1 to 9 to start. And while you turn there, let me give you a little bit of context. You guys are like, turn? What do you mean, turn? Everybody's like, Bible? Yeah, they have, we have them in paper. I know the analog version is, is really, really good. They just released it. Um, I like that joke, even if nobody laughs. Um, the book of Acts, Jesus, Jesus encounters the disciples as this resurrected Messiah, right? And he shows up at the end of the Gospels in two, two, two different times. And Jerry talked about this a couple weeks ago. He shows up two different times to these guys who at one time were very excited to be following Jesus. And then when he was crucified, they hid because they were terrified, and so, so these guys are hanging out, and Jesus shows up after he's been resurrected, and, and then he ascends to heaven. And the disciples are propelled out by the encounter that they had. These terrified guys now go into the world, and they share this message, this gospel, that Jesus is the Messiah, is the resurrected king. He's alive, 
and you can have relationship with him. And this, this message just takes off. You read in Acts chapter 2 that thousands come to Christ in one day. And it takes off, and, and yet with that comes persecution. And, and the disciples begin to face persecution, but now because they've been emboldened by this encounter with Jesus... They face the persecution without any problem. And, and so you get to chapter 7, as the church starts to grow, you get to Acts chapter 7, and we see the first martyr, the first person who's called to give his life because of following Jesus. It's Stephen, and as you get to the end of this, this encounter where Stephen gets martyred, we get introduced to this guy named Saul. And Saul is there holding the coats of all of those who are throwing stones and killing Stephen. And it says Saul approved of their killing, or he cast his vote on behalf of this. And then it sort of takes off for chapter 8 somewhere else, but then it comes back in chapter 9 to Saul. And we're going to read, beginning at verse 1, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. You know, one of the things that we keep saying is that the thing that changes us is encounter with Jesus. Reading this is great, but the reading this is supposed to point us to encounter with Jesus. I said in the very first week that this is like the menu. You don't go to a restaurant and eat the menu. The menu points to an experience that you can have. This points us to an encounter with Jesus, and it's the encounter with Jesus that changes us. And that propels us into the world. And when we see this encounter that Saul has... It's kind of a remarkable encounter. Any of you have like that, you know, like the, the light flashing from heaven on the ground and then you were blind for three days? Is that your, I mean, I don't know everyone's conversion story, but, you know, there's bound to be a couple of you that have had the light flashing from heaven, you know, like, you know Jesus just dialed up number nine and that's the light and the blindness. But it's kind of a remarkable encounter, right? We don't usually see this, but what makes it more a more remarkable encounter is Saul is deeply religious. Saul is a deeply religious, he's a devout Jew, and he's so religious, he's so devoted to his Jewish faith that he's persecuting those who follow Jesus. And it's not that crazy, really, what Saul is doing. I don't know how many times you've ever read this and thought, wow, Saul's kind of a jerk. You know, you, you read it and you're like, this guy is like killing people and certainly that's not okay, but that's not what's happening. Saul is actually living out his religious convictions. Let me show you. From Saul's perspective, those who follow Jesus are blaspheming God because they claim that Jesus is the Messiah and that he is himself fully God and fully man. 
And from his perspective, the Old Testament says anyone who's hung on a tree is cursed by God. So clearly he can't be the Messiah. And so these folks are blaspheming God. And the penalty for blasphemy is death. Here's what Leviticus 24 says. Your favorite book, right? Leviticus. You ever get stuck in that book? Whoo. Leviticus 24, 13 to 16 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Take the blasphemer outside the camp. All those who heard him are to lay their hands on his head, and the entire assembly is to stone him. Say to the Israelites, Anyone who curses their God will be held responsible. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord is to be put to death. The entire assembly must stone them, whether foreigner or native-born. When they blaspheme the name, they are to be put to death. So Saul is living out his religious convictions. When they stone Stephen, he's just following the book. He's just doing what this book says to do. Because it's right there. But we need to clarify what we mean by religious you know, give some definitions here. In the first century, religion was what people did to pacify and gain favor from the gods. Each nation had their own god or their own gods who had no real personal interest in the people. Like the gods didn't really care who you were or, you know, how nice a person you were. Typically, the gods were very angry by default, and it was the duty of the nation to offer the things that that god demanded. Offer the sacrifices, offer the worship in whatever way that God demanded in order for the nation to be secure. And so whether or not you actually believed it, it was your duty up to an... It was considered treason if you didn't do your duty to worship the gods. To offer the sacrifices they demanded because what you're doing is you're securing the nation. And you must hate the nation if you don't worship this way. And so the goal of of religion was to pacify the gods, to gain favor from the gods, because if we don't worship this way, the gods will be angry and they will certainly bring us defeat, right? Have you ever read the Old Testament and wondered why the nation of Israel was so concerned when they went to war and lost? Have you ever wondered that? The reason is because what people would assume is the gods of that nation were stronger than the God of Israel. This this plays out all over the place through the Old Testament. And when you look at Saul as an expert in the law, he's a Pharisee, what he believed is keeping the law perfectly, keeping the law perfectly would expedite the coming of the Messiah. And so the, the Pharisees and Saul kept the law very, 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 very accurately externally, but it wasn't enough for them to just keep it themselves. You know, just be religious on your own and leave everybody else alone. No, national security is at stake, and so we have to make everyone else keep the law. Because if we don't, if we don't do the things that God has prescribed, the things he desires, then the nation will crumble and God will be angry with us. So we have to go make everyone else keep the law. We have to go make everyone else do it. It doesn't matter whether our hearts are in it. It's irrelevant. How you feel about it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you believe it. Your duty is to offer the worship that the God demands. This is what it means to be religious. Religion is man's attempt to win favor with God. Man's attempt to win favor with God. 
You know, we try to make sure that we meet all the externals that God demands, right? Whatever it is you've decided that God needs from you to be pleased with you, that's what you offer if you're religious. So you offer your church attendance, you offer your Bible reading, you offer your offering or your acts of charity or your good morality, anything you think it takes to pacify God and avoid his wrath and stay in his good graces. This is what it is to be religious. How can you tell if you're religious? Because of those things that I just named are good things, right? Reading the Bible is not a bad thing to do. I would encourage you to do it. Giving your offering is definitely not a bad thing to do. I would encourage you to do that too. How do you, can you tell if those activities have become religious? A good gauge is to take an honest look at what happens inside you when you do those acts. Walk with me a little bit. I want you to just sort of like imagine and just sort of get in the, in the space where you can sense how you feel as I say some of these things, okay? This is just a, a personal awareness exercise. Ready? How do you decide when you decide to read your Bible how much you will read? How do you decide? I mean, think about it for a minute. As I'm thinking about how I decide how much Bible I will read, something internally happens, doesn't it? If I'm like, you're gonna, you should read your Bible, you internally, something happens. If reading your Bible doesn't do it for you, when you decide, hey, Sunday I'm going to show up to church, I'm going to give my offering, how much do I give? You make a decision, right? Something internally happens. What is that? What happens? Pay attention to internal, what happens as you make that decision. If you intentionally go to, to a place of trying to figure out how much it takes to satisfy God, if that's the first place you go, well, how, how much offering do I have to give for God to be happy? How much Bible do I have to read for God to be happy, for me to not get myself in trouble? What's the minimum? You may be religious. This feels like a Jeff Foxworthy joke. You might be religious. If that's where you go, like what's the minimum I can get away with and still be okay with God? You may have a religious spirit. You may be religious. Because here's the deal, when you, your acts are motivated by religious reasons, we tend to be stingy. Don't we? Don't we sort of tend to be stingy? It's like, hey, you know, I mean, I know the Old Testament standard for giving is uh, 10%, and so if I give 10.1%, I'm giving too much, right? I'm giving too much. Like, God would be happy with 10. Why would I give any more than that? Or if it's like, hey, you know, I feel like it's enough to read three chapters of the Bible, so why would I read four? God's happy if I read three. He's pleased. We're stingy, right? We don't just read on and on and on because we've fallen in love with who God is and want to know him deeply. We read to pacify God. Do you see this? How about this? Let's try another one. This will be fun. Are you guys having fun yet? Last week people were like, man, you made me feel a little bad. I'm, like, I'm not trying to. Another good test is what happens when you don't do these things? 
the acts of, uh, of your faith that you're intending to do, you're on a Bible reading plan and you miss a couple days. What happens inside of you? Or what happens if you forget to give your offering this week? And then after those two things happen, you know, a couple things at work go poorly and, you know, your car breaks down. And what do we think? Man, God must be punishing me because I didn't read my Bible and I didn't give enough. If that's what happens inside of you, you might be religious. Because you're, you're doing your acts or, or your, your failure of your acts has, uh, creates in you a fear that God is going to get you. You haven't pacified God enough with your acts of faith. Let's try one more. You guys got it in you? Do we have one more in us? Gary says yes. It's good. I'm just going on what Gary says. How about this? What happens in you when you see people around you who don't live up to the moral expectations that you live up to? Like, you know, you see people around you who are just wildly promiscuous and you've tried to be faithful, and yet it looks like their life is going better than mine. They have more money than I do. Look at the house they live in. It's not falling down. I'm being faithful to God and my house is crumbling. What happens inside you? Do you get angry? Do you get angry when people are getting away with it? Does it make you angry? If so, you might be religious. Because if it makes you angry, what you're saying is, I believe morally I've earned something that they haven't earned yet. And it makes me angry. Because I have given more to the God and the God owes me more. And here's what I know. There is good news, I promise. Here's what I know to be true. If any of these things hit close to home, as I'm talking about this, you're paying attention to your internal movements and it hits close to home and you're like, maybe I am a religious person. What I know happens immediately is you go into defense and justification. Some of you have already made a decision that you're going to corner me in the lobby when this is over and explain to me how I'm wrong. Can I just say, don't do that? I know where all the exits are. (laughs) Don't do that. Because here's the deal. All I'm trying to do is get you to pay attention to your inner movements. What happens inside you when we talk about these things? Because here's what I know. There's good news for religious people. Even if these things have exposed you, like, yes, I am a religious person, and I'm angry about it, and I'm going to tell you how angry I am. There's good news for you. You see, here's the deal. God became a man in Jesus. The long-awaited Messiah came to earth and the kingdom of God was inaugurated. It began on earth when Jesus showed up. And as the Messiah, Jesus went to the cross to die for religious people. All the ways that you're trying to placate God with your acts of faith, Jesus took on the wrath that you're afraid of. The thing that you're trying to pacify, Jesus dealt with for you. Do you know that Jesus died so that you could be a son or a daughter of God, your father? You are always living in the favor of God. You don't have to try to earn it. Do you know that? That's the good news. 
Jesus died to put an end to this endless cycle of trying to placate God's wrath and earn God's favor. You don't have to do it anymore. That's the good news. Grace has come to set you free. But here's what I also know. Grace is hard for religious people to receive. It's really, really hard. Look at verse 3 with me again. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. When Saul tells this story in Acts chapter 26, he adds a little detail. Acts 26, 14, he says, We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. You guys know what goads are? Like four of you are going to put your hands up and go, yeah, probably. A goad is a stick with a sharp point at the end. And when you're plowing a field, you stick the back of the ox to make it go where you want it to go. And it hurts a little bit. And then the ox goes where you want it to go. But sometimes the ox would kick against it, which would make the point go further into the ox's flesh, creating more pain. And what Saul was recounting is that Jesus said, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. He's saying, I've been trying to steer you to the truth for a long time, and you keep kicking against it. How long do you want to keep doing that? How much pain do you want to endure? How long do you want to kick against the goads? How has Jesus been trying to steer Saul? Well, there's something interesting to note. Scholars would say that Jesus and Saul were contemporaries. You know, both strapping young Jewish men who grew up as teachers. They were likely in Jerusalem at the same time. Odds are pretty good that Saul had heard Jesus speak, that they had probably met each other. And even if, even if Saul had not heard Jesus speak, he would have heard of all of the miraculous things that Jesus was doing. And it would stir inside of him. He's like, this guy's claiming to be the Messiah. Man, I don't like that. And the truth is right in front of him. And maybe that's not enough. Maybe, uh, you know, beyond that, Saul is standing there when Stephen is about to be killed. And Stephen is telling the whole story about how Jesus is the Messiah. And of course, inside, Saul's stirred up a little bit. But it would be hard not to, like, understand or see the challenge that comes when as Stephen is being killed, he prays that God would not hold this against the people who are killing him. And Saul would be forced to say, I don't like this. All these times, Jesus is inviting Saul into the truth. And even if that wasn't enough to get inside of Saul's head whenever finally Jesus flashes light from heaven, Saul would have been recognizing the voice And Jesus says, how long are you going to keep doing this? How long are you going to persist in rejecting what I'm trying to steer you to? But Jesus had been pursuing Saul for a long time. And Jesus was committed to reaching Saul. You see, when anyone comes to Christ, what we tend to see is just the moment of conversion. 
right? We just sort of, when I tell my story of coming to know Jesus, it's mostly focused on the hill in southern Indiana where I said, Jesus, I surrender. It's not all the ways that Jesus was saying, this way, this way, no, this way. How long are you going to kick against that? Saul doesn't even tell this, this, the, all the background every time he tells the story. He says, I was walking to Damascus. Jesus encountered me on the way. Most of the time, we just see the conversion story, but we're unaware of all the ways that Jesus has been drawing and, and steering and prodding and trying to get us into the truth. And here's what I've observed. When it comes to religious people coming to faith in Jesus, what I have discovered is it tends to take a lot longer and it tends to be a lot more extreme. And I think the reason this is true is because if you're religious, you have a tendency to hang your hat on the knowledge that you have. I have a lot of knowledge. I know how this system works. I show up, I give my money, I put my hands in the air a little bit, and I read the Bible. I know how this works. God then is happy with me. Life goes on. Obladi, oblada, right? Two people got that one. <laughs> I mean, after all, right? Don't you know how it works with your religion? Like, don't you know how your religious system works? And you're pretty comfortable. Even if it's a busted system, it feels like something you possess. I think I have something. I have connection with God that works mostly. Right? You know, we've invested a lot in it. And it makes me feel safe. Because I know how it works. I show up, I write my check, I read the book. I know how it works. Even worse than that, if you're the, the really religious one in a culture that's only marginally religious, you just sort of get promoted. Like people just look at you and they're like, man, look at you. You're really getting it. You've read the whole Bible. Wow, right? You get accolade for this kind of thing. If you're the one who has read the whole Bible, surrounded by people who have never read the Bible, you know what they do to you? They make you a pastor. They make you a leader. You've read the whole thing. I mean, none of the rest of us can stomach it. We get to Leviticus and we quit. We just hope the guy on Sunday morning tells us what the rest of it says. And so your religious system, especially if you're religious in reading the Bible, tends to make you feel like you have a lot, right? Like, what would people think? All these people that I lead, that I am shepherding, that I'm caring for, that I'm giving direction to, what would they all think if I said, yes, Jesus, I surrender? What would that look like? You have some stake that you don't want to give up, right? What would they all think if I suddenly surrendered to Jesus? Would it all be a sham? Let me tell you, it's a sham whether you think it is or not. If you've been pretending for a really long time, how long do you want to kick against the goads? How long do you want to keep this charade going? How long do you want to settle for something inferior? So when Jesus comes along and offers you grace and offers you a way out of the religious hamster wheel, you have a lot to lose, don't you? Or at least you think you do. And we fight against it. 
and we repeatedly kick against the goads. But here's the beautiful part. Jesus is more committed to you than you are to him. That's good news, isn't it? If I had to be more committed than Jesus, I'd be in trouble. So he continues to pursue us. And the question that comes down to all of us is how much pain do we want to keep enduring to avoid going where Jesus wants us to go? How long do you want this to hurt? How long do you want to suffer in this thing that's not working, but it looks like it is? I mean, maybe you don't get the flashing light from heaven, but maybe for you, the the job that you thought you were going to retire from just suddenly disappears. And you're scrambling, and Jesus says, hey, trust me. Why don't you trust me? Or maybe the marriage that you thought was forever is now a mess. And as you're scrambling to try to figure out where it all went wrong, Jesus says, would you trust me instead of the relationships that you have? Or maybe the comfortable theology you had for years all comes falling apart. And Jesus says, can you trust me more than your theology? How long will you kick against the goads? What I've discovered is that Jesus will utilize any circumstance to call you to himself. And for those who are religious, it tends to take more tumbling and more pain before we say, fine, I give, I surrender. I've used this C.S. Lewis quote before, but it bears repeating. We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Jesus continued to pursue Saul even though he was resistant until one day Jesus said, I surrender, or uh, Saul said, I surrender. Throughout this series, I've been saying how important it is that you have an encounter with Jesus. And what I said at the beginning is the encounter that you have with Jesus is not just for you. The encounter you have with Jesus is for everyone around you. It's what propels you into the world with the good news of Jesus. And when Jesus finally gets a hold of Saul, it's not because he's trying to stop Saul from being a jerk. That may be a side benefit. It's not because he's like, hey, you're chasing him down and I can't keep up. So let me get a hold of you so that my people can sort of breathe for a minute. Jesus gets a hold of Saul because he has big plans for Saul. In verse 9, we see that one of the impacts of this encounter with with Jesus is that Saul is blind for three days. And so he and his companions go stumbling into Damascus, and at the same time, Jesus gives a vision to a guy named Ananias, and he says, I want you to go to Saul, lay your hands on him, and see him have his sight restored. And of course, Ananias is like, Jesus, I think you missed something. You don't know. This guy's not here for good. Uh, We don't like that guy. Uh, He's been killing people. And Jesus is, Jesus doesn't even explain himself. If you read it, Jesus doesn't, he just sort of goes, just go. (laughs) It's like, okay. And he gets, he gets there and he, he puts his hands on uh, Saul's eyes and he says, brother Saul, receive your sight. And verse 18 says this, Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, 
And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, at once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't this the same man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? They're stunned like we would be, right? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. All the work that Jesus goes to to reach Saul pays off immediately. When Saul finally says yes, within days he's preaching Jesus as the Messiah. And if you know the rest of the story, Saul becomes Paul. And Paul goes on missionary journeys to take the gospel all over present-day Turkey and Greece and out to Rome. And on his way, he plants untold number of churches, writes about half of the New Testament. We have a, a, a message of Jesus in our language because Paul perpetuated it across Europe. The impact of reaching Saul is tremendous. One of the reasons that the enemy fights so hard against religious people coming to Christ is because there's so much potential. There's so much potential. If you get a hold of Jesus, there's so much potential for people around you to come, and come to know Jesus. Saul didn't convert to a new religion. See, Saul already had all this stuff. You know, the Jewish people have a lot of this book. The only part they're missing is the New Testament. Saul already had all this, and he was better read in the Old Testament than all of us. What he was missing was an encounter with Jesus that brought light to it all. And as soon as Jesus revealed himself as the fulfillment of, of Saul's Jewish faith, it propelled him into the world. In 2003, when I gave my life to Jesus, I felt like I started further down the road than a lot of the other people around me who were giving their lives to Jesus. Many of you will know I grew up in a Lutheran church, and what I felt like happened as I, I reflected on that is in that Lutheran church, I felt like the people in that church built a house, this beautiful house full of all this furniture and all this understanding and all of the, the walls were there and the rooms were there, and it was a cold and dark house that was uninhabited. But when I met Jesus, I didn't get a new house. The Holy Spirit moved in, turned on the lights, and kicked up the heat, and it became a welcoming place. I had all the furniture already. All that was lacking was the presence, the encounter with Jesus, that the Holy Spirit could, could do something with me. And what I finally re realized, what I discovered is that the hymns I used to mumble through came alive. Scripture came alive. I actually began to understand it, not just with my head, but with my heart. That there was life. And I've lived every day since that time wanting to see people come to the, real, the full realization that Jesus is alive and that he wants a relationship with you and that he will give you his spirit that will turn the lights on and kick the heat up. It's, it's an offer to all of us. Listen, what I know for you is that Jesus wants to move in. He wants to bring life to all the religious practice you've done before. He wants to bring life 
to all this thing that we call Christianity. He wants to bring life, but he doesn't want to just bring it in you. He wants to bring it through you to the world around you. What I know is that this city, that this region will continue to be hopeless until we are people who come alive and who offer that life to the people around us. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.